Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data, unlimited talk and text, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone and any Mint Mobile plan and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. My team here, they're on Mint Mobile, and they like it. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proved to have excellent coverage with no-drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. To get this new customer offer and the new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash literally. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hello. Hi, Rob. Have we ever really truly crossed paths? We haven't, but I know you spent a lot of time growing up here, and so did I. I'm from here. Beverly Hills High School, come on. I, I try to keep that on the DL because it kind of undermines any credibility you hope to have. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Or or if you're a first-timer, welcome, period, to literally with me, Rob Lowe. Um, every once in a while doing this podcast, I get to do something really, really special for me. And that is meet someone on the podcast I've never met and always admired and and felt like they're in my life, like in the DNA of my life from like some of my earliest memories. And now I'm finally getting to meet them and ask them everything I've ever wanted to know. And today is Lorraine Newman. And I cannot tell you, well, you know, if you listen to the podcast, what a huge Saturday Night Live fan I am, particularly of the glory years. I mean, I'm, I'm just having images of Lorraine in my head from those years, even as we speak. And she's got an audiobook out right now which goes over all of it, which I'm going to be downloading immediately, called May You Live in Interesting Times. So look, enough with my, my blabbing. Let's get to, I get to meet Lorraine Newman. Yay! Every high school in L.A. has kind of a different reputation 
What was Beverly Hills High School like when you were? I'm because I'm from I'm Santa Monica High School. Well, I don't know what kind of reputation Beverly had. I went there in the '60s, um, so it was the Vietnam War, and mm-hmm. it was like the beginning of like the British invasion, and um, you know, bands like The Doors and Three Dog Night played our high school. No way <laughs> yes my first girlfriend my first love you know everybody has that first love was the lead singer of three dog nights daughter Ooh. so Corey wells who was the lead singer of three dog night it was his daughter who was also named Corey wells go figure um three dog night they were so good their sound i love their sound to this day i still love it but the doors also played your high school yeah was Jim Morrison like, love me two times? Hey, you little girl in the poodle skirt. <laughs> Not quite poodle skirts. No, we, we got to wear the, it was when the dress code was let, you know, abolished. So we could wear oh. jeans to school, which was great. I loved that. But I, you know, I, I've lived a time, Rob, when you, you had to wear a skirt or a dress. Did they measure the skirts? Because they, my kids went to, to school where they had to have uniforms and, and they they would come out with and measure the skirts like over the knee and stuff like that. Yeah, the girls would roll them up so they'd be mini skirts. And so were there famous people's kids in the school? Had to have been, right? Yeah, I went to school with uh, Monty Hall's kids. Uh, Richard Hall was in my grade. He was class president and his sister, Joanna Hall, who is now Joanna Gleason, was... Is Monty Hall's daughter. I had no idea. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, she was in all the school musicals, having, you know, a completely professional voice, you know, and performance style even then. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, a lot of character actors, kids. Um, were the, were, was the Candace Bergen, were the Bergen kids in there? She's quite a bit older than I am, but we lived across the street from her. Ah. Um, and down the street from Kirk Douglas, uh, we used to live across the street. We moved around a lot because my mother liked to design houses. And then when she was done, she'd be bored and we'd move again. <laughs> so uh, we lived in a lot of spots. And uh, yeah, we lived across from Groucho Marx and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you see Groucho? Would you like wave to Groucho in the morning as he was getting his mail? He was at that point really too old to be getting around, you know. Yeah. Uh, so no, I did not say howdy, neighbor. Oh, I live <laughs> next door also to one of the Bowery boys. I think it was Leo Gorsi. Jesus. And uh, his sister. A- yeah, <laughs> his sister would hang out in front, and they had like one of those white rock gardens in the front of the house. Oh, yeah, I remember those. And she she was such a character. She was really like a female Bowery boy, and she talked like that, too. You know, quit taking those rocks, kids. Jesus. She was a character. <laughs> Beverly Hills was, the, the, I, I just remember that those kids, as I was growing up, were way more civilized. We were like savages. <laughs> at Santa Monica High School, or SAMO, as they used to say. Were you also near the beach? And that's kind of wilderness, pretty much. Well, this was the urban jungle. Yeah, it was Rodeo Drive and uh, the Daisy Club. and The Daisy. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, what was it else? It was um, Jack's, J-A-X. That was a clothing store. I would see like Robert Culp in there shopping. And <laughs> your listeners uh, will not know any of these names I'm I'm putting this, down. No, this is the best. I love, <laughs> I love the old school, old school references. And I didn't, I mean, I knew you were queen of the groundlings, legendary, but I didn't realize you were in the establishing original of the OG groundlings. One of the OG, yeah, founding members of the groundlings when we were just a, a workshop, an improv workshop in uh, a theater off of Vermont. And that was at the time when I hung out with my artist boyfriend and he would eat at this diner called Duke's, which was right underneath the Tropicana Motel. And yes. it was, you know, family style seating. And at the time we became friends with our table mates and it would be people like George Memley and, you know, Martin Scorsese and Don Simpson when he was still a writer before he was producing with Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm. And... uh God, Iggy Pop and Tom Waits. I mean, they were just, it was breakfast. Dukes was an amazing, I'm surprised, well, once they tore the Tropicana down, I guess they tried to do Dukes on the Sunset Strip and it was never the same, right? And it never caught on. Right. I caught Dukes just at the end and Chasen's. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. And there's really never been anything like either one of those places ever. Dukes was always, I think everybody, well, listen, it was breakfast, so a lot of people were hungover. It definitely had a a hungover vibe to it, right? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, If if they did, I I was oblivious to that. I can promise you Iggy Pop had a hungover vibe. Yeah, probably. And Tom Waits, for sure. That's just a given. And Martin Scorsese in the 70s, I mean, he wouldn't have been hungover. No. I got to see a screening of Mean Streets before he had the music on it. So this was really super early. Oh, yeah. It was it was before Mean Street, Streets was released. Jeez. So he was screening it for his friends. And then um, I invited him to see, a, you know, a Groundlings show before we were the Groundlings. And Valerie Curtin was part of our um, our group. And she had been in the San Francisco committee and then was in this group. And she was also writing partners with Barry Levinson who was in a group called the Step Brothers at the newly opened comedy store, blah, blah, blah. But wow. um, he saw her in our show and, and hired her for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That was such a great era. Yeah. That was the era that, that made me want to be an actor. It was before corporations and, and big money found that there was potentially big money in this. Yeah, well, it was before the youth market in film. Certainly, it was there for music and fashion. But the yep. youth market had not quite attached itself to film yet. You know, you begin to have auteurs, like, you know, making movies like Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice. Yep. And, you know, Elliot Gould as a private eye. Elliot Gould, the most unlikely movie star. I and know. Had, like, I agree. The, the most unlikely movie star ever. And And... That mash, and then one other movie he had that was like like he was the biggest star in the world. I know, isn't that interesting? And that could only have happened at that time. Can you imagine Elliot Gould in a Marvel movie, like as <laughs> like like in his in his like um, prime? Elliot in his prime is a young man. He's he's the biggest movie star in the world. What would Elliot Gould? Would he carry the hammer like <laughs> Thor? Would that be his move? Oh my God, he would be accountant man. He'll push a pencil up a mountain. And find oh. fraud. Although he was so good in um, Ocean's Eleven, there's one scene where he has a line where he's trying to talk in code in front of someone, 
And he oh, says to George Clooney, you know, the thing with the guy in the place. <laughs> and I never forgot that line. I always use it. He's a fun, he's so funny. So groundlings. Yes. So we were a workshop and then we decided, well, we would do these scene nights. And here, here's the other people that were in our group. It was um, Tony Burton who played, um, he was in the first Rocky movie. He was one of the trainers. Um, Pat Morita, who was, oh, yeah, you know, Mr. Miyagi, Jack Sue, Tim Matheson. I love Tim. Yeah, he's great. Yes, I have known him that long. And it's Ugh. such a six degrees of SNL in the sense that, like, Valerie Curtin is Jane Curtin's cousin, you know, and uh, Tim ended up playing the role that was written for Chevy in Animal House. It's just all connected, Rob. It is. Um, so how did you meet? The, the great Lorne, tell me, tell me, please, the first time you laid eyes on him. <laughs> well, we were doing a show, our show at the Groundlings, and Lorne was producing a Lily Tomlin special. And they needed some people to fill out the cast. And so he and Lily came to our show. Wow. And they hired me from that. And that was amazing because I met people like Rosie Schuster, who became an SNL writer, and Marilyn Miller, who became an SNL writer, and Valerie Bromfield, who was absolutely brilliant and was Dan Aykroyd's partner in Canada, performing partner, and in Second City. So Saturday Night Live had, you know, in a way, it was so ahead of its time in so many areas, but one of them is how many smart, powerful women who were the backbone of the show. I mean, it was always a boys' club. It wasn't. It, it just nope. it wasn't. Not from Good. my perspective. Uh, you know, uh, it was a meritocracy, and I think it still is. Whatever's really working the best goes in the show. Whatever's funny. Um, so the only thing was a numbers situation where we had three women writers and ten male writers, and you know. People like Al Franken would make an effort to write like a female-centric sketch, which I always admired. But it was just, you know, a numbers thing. So you just had more things written by men, but it wasn't that the women were edged out or anything or discouraged. What um, Do you remember the first show? Well, how did Lauren, when, when Saturday Night came along, how was it pitched to anybody? Like, what was the description? He told me it would be a cross between Monty Python and 60 Minutes. Of course he said that. And this was in 1974, and Monty Python was not showing in Los Angeles. I had never heard of them. I never saw mm. them. It's going to be a show you've never heard of, Lorraine, <laughs> but one day you will. And, of course, 60 Minutes, which, as everyone knows, is hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. It is hilarious. But, yeah, he uh, had me meet him at the Chateau Marmont mm. out of the pool. And he told me what this show was going to be, and it was going to be for 13 weeks with a five-year option, like that'll <laughs> ever happen, you know. And um, that was it. And I I was really, I had no idea, and I didn't want to go to New York. God, did I And you're how old? You're how old, 21? I'm, 20, I'm 23. I was 22 when I did the Lily show. Okay. And right. 23 when um, I was hired for SNL. Jesus. And um, a very young 23, Rob. And I'm still a young 69, by golly. But, you um, are. <laughs> the, um, the prospect of going to New York was not thrilling for me. I was scared, you know, and I didn't know anybody. And first night we were there, I mean, no, the third night we were there, the car was stolen. 
Welcome to New York. That we drove in with all my stuff and my written material and costumes for my no. characters. Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah. And, you know, Lorne wanted me to mount a show for the writers because he was the only one who knew what I did. He, don't, he was the only one who had seen me at the Groundlings. So you just had to, you had to go out and find this, find new clothes and write new stuff? Or did you, I mean, you just did it. You had to. I didn't need the, the uh, costumes, but what I did need was the actual material because I hadn't performed it all, all over the summer. It had been like three months and I didn't have it memorized. I didn't have these things memorized. These were like character monologues that had been crafted and honed over a period of time. So, you know, I didn't have like the connective tissue that led me from one moment to another. And it was a terrible feeling. Oh, my God. And it, it was not my best foot forward, I can say. Modifying. The only, I mean, it's not the same, but I, I once had a car broken and due. And they, one of the things that was stolen was the only copy of a screenplay I'd been working on. Oh. And, and that's the only reason that you've never heard of that <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> By golly, if it had only been. Um, is there anybody in that cast that you remember seeing the first time you saw them? Because there's certain people in life like I've known forever, but I don't remember the first time that I met them or saw them and they're very, very important to me. And then there are others who I might not know that well, but I remember vividly. In fact, I'm wearing a shirt right now. For those of you who can see this on the podcast, um, I'm wearing a shirt of Chris Farley. Aww. And I remember the very first time I'm, I saw Chris. Was there anybody like that for you? Do you remember like meeting Danny Aykroyd? Do you remember Belouche? I met them all. Um... Let's trade Belushi stories. Okay. I'll tell you the first time I met John and only time I met John. And you tell me. Uh, well, my story, I only have good experiences with John. He was um, like the Tasmanian devil. And <laughs> I would go to the Blues Bar, which was a great place and always reminds me of that scene in Train Spotting where it says, This is the filthiest toilet in Scotland. No, <laughs> the Blues Bar had the filthiest toilet. But, you know, John every once in a while would drop over at my place and then fall asleep. And I'd have to call his wife, Judy, and say, Can you? Come and get him. He's taking up some room in my bed. Um, but he was so, I mean, I love John. He was a really sweet guy. I mean, I know those words have rarely been associated with him, but he, he really was. I get that. He was, he was very, very sweet. I, I, um, this is the most convoluted and bizarre. It's, this story sounds like a, a hallucination, but it's real. So, and I'm going to go through it very quickly because it's very Byzantine getting to the end of it. But it's it's worth it. Trust me. Um, uh, it's the 1977 World Series. I'm there. It's Dodgers, Yankees. My brother's with me. He's a very, he's much younger than me. He's wearing a Yankees hat and getting hassled at the hot dog line to get hot. Hassle, hassle, hassle. Mm. Guy comes up and says, hey, back off this kid. Leave this kid alone. We get to talking. He turns out as a member of the Muppets. Oh, and invites us to come to the see the Muppet movie being filmed. We go to the Muppet movie being filmed. We meet all the Muppets. They're filming the Rainbow Connection sequence. And then they're like, well, Kermit the Frog is hosting um, The Tonight Show in two weeks. Do you, do you want to come to that? And I'm like, The Tonight Show? I'm like, I'm a young actor. I've never been in anything. I'm, I'm probably 13 years old. We go to The Tonight Show. You know, obviously, it's my mom, my stepdad, my brother, and I. And Kermit is hosting. And I never, I have this memory of him sitting on a little chair doing a monologue. 
Um, and then he had guests and whatever. And then afterwards there was a party and I was back there and Jim Henson was there and everybody was there. And I looked across the room and there was Belushi and I was just staring at him. He was my hero. I mean, you guys were taught me everything I ever knew about how to be funny. And I was just a pup and I watched every episode. And I mean, it was, I, I still think I kind of know more about those years of SNL than the people who made SNL. Um, it's possible. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, I was looking at John, and he was looking at me, probably because he was wondering, what is a little kid doing at this party? I'm sure that's what he was thinking. And I kind of worked my – he was staring at me, and I worked my nerve up, and I went over to him. And I held my hand out. I said, I said, hey, my name is Rob. Hey, kid, how you doing? He was so sweet, so lovely. And he goes, what do you want to do? He asked me. That's the key to the story. Oh, that's neat. He asked me, and I said I wanted to be an actor – and his face clouded over. He took a very long time, and he looked me directly in the eyes and said, stay out of the clubs. Yeah, at that time, clubs meant uh, like like Studio 54, and in that sense, I guess I get it. When I first heard you say clubs, I thought meant you meant like the comedy store and the improv. Yeah. And how would that have any bearing yeah. no, on he, his experience, let alone yours? No, as, even, as a th- I see. even as a 13-year-old, I knew it, he was... It was a euphemism for don't do what I've done. House of the Rising Sun. Right? Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day? Or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky. Same day. Or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer. California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. I, look, I love California. Um, and I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin softening body wash and scents like redwood, wildland, and stone, and an extra high quality, amazing smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash rob. That's Harry's dot com slash rob for a three dollar trial set for years i just dreaded going to the dentist 
but at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. If I have to think of my all-time favorite, I know you probably hear it all the time, but my all-time favorite vintage SNL runner gotta be Coneheads. Let me tell you the story of Coneheads. Please. Before we went on the air, Lauren thought it would be a good idea to have us all do improv at his loft for the cast to bond. Uh, we did it twice. It never really kind of, you couldn't achieve that in two, you know, two weeks. So, um, but one of the improvs we did was an alien family and it was Jan- Danny, Jane and me. We all assumed our roles. We did the, I did the voice. So we all did that voice. And then we all forgot about it. And then Danny came up with the cone heads. <laughs> and so the only thing that we really achieved from the improv was the voice and the family structure. But he created the, you know, he and Tom Davis created the, the cone heads. And Danny, I think, has said that he was inspired by, you know, the, the uh, statues from Easter Island and this planet Earth and this island Earth. That was the movie, this island Earth. People with big foreheads. Yeah, there's a whole thing and in, in, there's a whole rabbit hole of people with giant skulls that may or may not have been aliens. I had, I had never put that together with the Coneheads and who clearly loved Beer and, and chips, consumables. They love that. Yes, mass quantities. Mass, mass quantities. And that's always amazing to me because uh, during the pandemic, I've watched a lot of TV and I've watched a lot of Swedish television. And I've heard things like people say parental units, you know, in <laughs> Swedish, and mass quantities. <laughs> and it just blew my mind. Parental units became, and I know this is, this is another speciality of yours, became Valley Girl- um, my parental units, they said with no irony. That became like, it wasn't even referential. Yeah, they, it might have gotten to the point they didn't know where it came from. Well, for sure. People t- for sure go, oh, the, my parental units are around. They have no idea that it's a Conehead reference. That's amazing to me. I re- remember vividly when they found, they found a sensor ring under your, under Connie's bed. We're very upset about that. The shame. The shame of the sensor rings. What people forget is Saturday Night Live is live and what that means is the costume changes are the most fun nerve-wracking part of doing this the show uh, in my in my experience how quick did you get your cone on well it was always at the top of the show Mm, right so we had time to put it on and uh and then we would just tear them off (laughs) but they were anchored right between our eyes Mm -hmm. and at our temples and the base of our necks and to this day jane and i don't have any hair there It just got ripped off so many times. But that was when I really thought this is a great job. The day that they had us eating fiberglass and it was made out of cotton candy. I thought, yeah, I'm getting paid to do this. This is great. And that was a Danny, a Danny sketch. So Danny. I mean, there are so many things that... You know, you can just tell Danny's sensibility. There's a, I t- in my book, I talk about my favorite ensemble sketches, but I also just talk about you know, my favorite sketches in general. And one of them is Drool Bucket, 
<laughs> and it was when Michael Palin was a. Aren't they on a, a ship, a, a pirate a, ship? Well, that was the Raging Queen. That was a different. It was it was the same character, Miles Cowperthwaite. But the first Miles Cowperthwaite sketch was Drool Bucket, and Danny <laughs> played this, you know, doddering old man who would have fits and drooled excessively, and he had this little tin cup attached to right below his lip <laughs> to catch the drool. And, you know, uh, Miles Cowperthwaite's job was to empty the drool cup into a bucket. So and, good. you know, it was this, like, sloshing gray stuff, and the audience was so grossed out. We were pissing ourselves, but, you know, that's so Danny. I love um, Danny's Bassomatic. In fact, I did it at my yes. sixth-grade talent show. There was that weird Saturday Night Live book that came out that was kind of had a green cover that was meant to look like a notebook. Yeah, the paperback. Yeah. yeah, you remember that? So I had that, and Bassomatic is in it, the actual script. So I just memorized it and did it. And um, to this day, I'll, when I run into people from Malibu Park Junior High School, they they all remember Bassomatic because it ends with you know the drinking of the blended ba- raw bass. Mmm, that's good bass. Which, it was lobster bisque. It was cold lobster bisque. And then in the 40th anniversary, it was strawberry ice cream. Because it's a good job. But your book is an audio book, but is it in print as well? It's just an audio book right now. It's not in print. It's it's just audio. You want an audio book from you with the voices. We want the voices. We want your voices. With the voices. You want the voices. Do you do voices? In the book, yeah. Are you the only person on planet Earth who knows Lauren that doesn't do a Lauren? I don't really do a Lauren. Oh. I do some of his expressions like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, um, you know, you guys didn't know the Lauren that would say exactly. Uh, he had gone past that by the time I think all of you knew him. I, I remember I was at a, a dinner with Lauren and Roseanne Barr, and it was the height of Roseanne being Roseanne. And um, Lauren said, hey, Roseanne. Uh, did you have you been to the Whitney to see Monet's haystacks? They're breathtaking. <laughs> That's a great impression, but I can't say I don't. I don't really do a Lorne. You're the okay, you. You should get an award. <laughs> you're the one of the best vo- vo- voice actors on the planet. Been there at the beginning, and and like I mean, there are people that did w- one walk on on Saturday Night Live and and make a career out of doing Lorne. Yeah, I just end up sounding like Don Pardo. I think it, what it is is it's, it's you're so sophisticated and so good at it. That you you will not sully yourself. To, That's to, the reason that I don't, because it's just if it's not a hundred percent, I don't want to do it. What does it say about me that that voice kind of lights me up a little bit? Well, the Valley Girl that I did is kind of different than the ones that you hear today, but I bet you would recognize the one that I did, which was you know I I noticed that like. The ing endings would be e e n, so it would be like I'm going to the mall, or I'm thinking, or I'm doing, or words. There's it has a glottal l, so words like probably would be probably, and uh, couldn't would be you know well wouldn't be would be want, and shouldn't would be shouldn't, and couldn't would be cunt, and uh, <laughs> tried to work cunt into a sketch. Uh, for the 40th, but I, I chickened out. You know, I was already responsible for one time the uh, the censors came down on me for saying pissed off. How dare you use such a phrase? <laughs> it was never said on TV before, little old me. Wow. And um, 
I did it in dress rehearsal and, and the, um, the, the censor at the time was a guy named Her- Herminio Traviesis. And he said, you, you cannot say that, you know, and Lorne said, just say it on the air. Amazing. <laughs> and I was only too happy to do it, you know, because fuck the man. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, hell of a- um, but then I got in trouble. You know, they said, uh, we'll put you back on a five second delay, which means you're not technically live. So I, I made myself very apologetic. Apologetic. You, you yeah, bent, unctuous. You bend the knee. I bent the knee. Yeah. But, you know. To the censor. They had to know that I didn't, it wasn't an accident. Because if it was an accident, then they were really were dealing with a loose cannon. I had to make um, it clear that it was a choice that I made. So it's amazing more of that didn't happen, really. In terms of language, you know, there's very little that is being left to the imagination. You know people are saying, fuck. How come you didn't sue Moon Unit Zappa for uh, copyright infringement for Valley Girl? Well, because I didn't copyright it. and well, also, Why didn't you copyright it? Uh, because what did I know? I was so naive. And Frank Zappa actually wanted to do something with that character. He was fascinated by that character. But we just never got around to it. And, you know, I mean, it's, why would I do that? Yeah, it's no, it's like, know. you know, yes, I was the first Valley Girl and you're welcome. You know, mm-hmm. it's not something you want to really own. There was a great episode on NDR about dialects and um, how they've, you know, migrated from their point of origin and how that their origin in the region that it comes from is a corruption of, you know, whatever British, you know, country that the immigrant came from. Yep. Um, I learned that the Boston accent is an affectation. It's not a corruption of an original dialect. It is an affectation uh, to because they thought it made them sound classy. Um, I That's swear amazing. to God. But they also were talking about the fact that, you know, the valley speak, so to speak, is now all across the country. That there is so, it's so pervasive. Oh, yeah, for sure it is. it's just been integrated, you know, everywhere. But I've also noticed people, there's, there's words like instead of by accident, it's on accident. Yes. And that drives me out of my mind. I don't know yep. why. It's like, get off my lawn. It's by accident. It, it's very important that if you do something on accident... <laughs> That you say sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Say sorry is one word, right? Yeah. You say sorry. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I, I, I love that stuff. You and I need to do a series called Word Archaeologists. Ooh. Where we, we search down, you know, sorry, not sorry, um, on fleek. Can I tell you something? I, I, I would be so down with that. I'm not kidding because I'm obsessed with it. Wouldn't that be fun? It. Well, because all of a sudden it's like, where, where did this, what the fuck where did this come from yeah i'm, I'm gobsmacked and i'm thinking of the cornucopia of possibilities we'll start making an outline honey i'll make notes let's take a quick break you know the only thing i ever let interrupt my podcast my dog take a minute now please pet your dog while you learn about bark the company dedicated to making dogs happy Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox 
to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats to keep my dogs healthy and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dot com slash Rob Lowe. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high performance EVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to sixty. In 3.4 seconds, it is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. Are you in a closet right now? Are those, what's behind you? I'm, a, I'm kind of obsessed with what's behind you. It looks like travel bags of clothes. It is. I am in my closet and these are soundproof panels because during the pandemic, I was doing a Netflix series. I was doing actually several shows and I was recording from here. So it had to be soundproof. So I actually learned how to do all this stuff. Isn't it funny what the pandemic taught us? I mean, the things that we learned about that we learned that we're going to continue to do and the things that we realized, I'm not doing that anymore, no matter what. Yeah. I'll tell you the one thing I'm never doing again. Like, I'm a skier. And I'm never riding on a gondola filled with people again. You, They pack you into those gondolas, and they're enclosed, and everybody's, ugh, oh, my God. Just, oh, ugh. yeah. 
that's that's a thing of the past. There are some things that will literally never be the same. No. And, uh, but I'm also, even at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing my own grocery shopping. As long as I follow the protocols, I didn't feel like I was going to be at risk. You know, I, I just... Uh, well, I wasn't at risk because I'm untouchable. <laughs> Especially in Montecito. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's been... I'm not sure that I would have enjoyed the podcasting as much as I have been and continue to do had it not been, you know, one of the sole outlets. I mean, did when what during what period did you write the audiobook? Was it recent or have you, have you been working on it off and on for a while? I've been working on it off and on for years. For years? Yes. And I, every time I attempted a rewrite, there would be really what I thought was good stuff in it. But then I would kind of hit a wall, whether, you know, the subject matter made me depressed or frustrated or I couldn't remember or I would just have, you know, say, this is not interesting. Where am I going? Why am I doing this? So it kept going. It kept being put away nine times. And then I would write a whole lot of other stuff to avoid writing the book. Mm. So I had all this material, and then I got the offer from Audible. So I asked my friend Paul Slansky, who had edited an article I wrote for Esquire when I was still on SNL, and it's what he does. He helped Carrie Fisher with her first book. Wow. He uh, helped Norman Lear with his book. Uh, that's what he does. And we were just at lunch and I said, I got an offer from Audible. I'm so disorganized. I don't know how I'm going to do this. He said, well, I'll help you. And boy, did he help me. Wow. He helped me cull through it and organize it and get it into, you know, fact check, chrono- chronological order. Um, wow. This is boring. Right. <laughs> More of this, less of that. But, you know, the reason for writing the book changed. I don't know how you felt about your book, but the reason changed because I realized that there was a constant in my life, which was that I got to be front row at a lot of the cultural movements of the last 50 years, whether I was a witness to, but in the front row, or an instigator of. And I thought that that would be a really interesting through line of the book. 100%. So it is. And that's what it should be. And you're absolutely right. One of the reasons why I wanted to write my book was you know, I, I was just lucky enough to be right there when that cha- when that changed forever. Yes. Yes. The movies that you did were definitely a product of that. You look back on it and you, you go, wow, there was a time when the movies for, were for adults. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Not anymore, darling. We're all doddering old fools. <laughs> How, you have two kids, right? I do. Me too. I have, yeah, but, but they're they're like yours. They're grown and they're out in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I know that's a cliche, yeah. but it really is. Same, one one hundred percent. And and you know, and you know, you you had that amazing, like injecting stimuli, mainlining it into your body, and then you go, yeah, like. The blues bar with Frank Zappa and Tom Waits is great and everything, but you know what's really cool? Parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah, the park and pushing them on a swing and making up games with them. And, you know, improv comes in gr- very handy with children, with small children. They're natural improvisers. Did they realize how good you were at it and say, Mommy, tell me another story about a shark. 
Uh, well, yeah, I painted myself into a corner with that because I also did voices when I would read to them. Ugh. And it would be the end of the day when I would already worked at a job and I would be, you know, like, mommy's off work. Mommy's tired, you know. Did you ever have this problem when reading books to your kids and doing voices where you forget what voice you'd given that character? And they're like, that's not the voice. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I read it yesterday. What do you want from me? Honestly, no, that's not happened. Because you're a professional. It's funny when you go when you go back and read. Like, I, re- I, re- I remember reading Where the Red Fern Grows to my son. I've never heard of that book. Oh, it, well, it, oh, oh, it's classic. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it is, it, it's a classic, but it's of a very, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. It was like a total sort of raw boned, uh, it will make you weep. Like literally we, I was, I was, it's about, it's about a boy and his dog and it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the ultimate boy and his dog, um, Americana, uh, where they finally talk about. Where the red fern grows, you're like, why is that the title? And then when they finally get to that at the end, my, my I think it was the first time my kids ever saw me cry. Really, that's beautiful. There, I remember just giving the, the characters the voices and not and forgetting like what I'd done. And they're like, "What are you doing, Dad?" I'm like, "But you're a professional. You don't you don't have that problem." And also, the care the voices are usually different animals. I know what voice I gave the animal. Yeah. Like Dinner at the Panda Palace, which, you know, the way I did it was so, would have gotten me canceled big time. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah it's, a, it's a slippery slope with voice acting because you're, you're doing a caricature a lot of times. Mm-hmm. People are sensitive. Yeah. And you know what's worse than sensitive people? Sensitive people's managers and agents <laughs> who are sensitive yes. for them on their behalf when they're not sensitive about it. Yeah. Gosh, can you just say, because I really want to go back to that place of my Mazda 626 and my Polo Cologne. Oh, it's mm. all coming back to me. My Polo Cologne, and I'm listening to George Benson's <laughs> Turn Your Love Around. Oh, my God. Sign us off in that, if you would, because it'll make my day. in your valley girl. You have been listening to Literally. With Rob Lowe. And um, I literally love him. I mean, really, truly love him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That was so fun. That was really fun, Rob. Wow, that was so fun. I I, I feel like I'm I'm emotionally hungover from that sign-off. I need to tell my my 15 and a half year old self to calm down. <laughs> oh man, that was fun. Hey, listen out there, y'all. Um, don't forget to tell two people in your life. If you like this show, tell two people today and they'll tell two people and so on and so on and so on. That would be really cool if you uh, would do such a thing for, for us here at uh, Literally. Anyway, today is a very sad day in the literally world. My producer, Devin, has moved on to greener pastures. I know you thought he had moved on, moved on. That's the good news. He has not. He is alive. He is well. He is kicking. And he is doing another podcast. And I wish him all the luck in the world. Um, This was his dream to go and work at this other podcast. 
um, and he finally got his dream come true. And that's what happens when you work at Literally. Your dreams come true. And if you listen to Literally, your dreams come true. Unfortunately, his dream was to go work somewhere else. And um, we're going to miss him. He was I- instrumental in in uh, helping us set the tone of the show, um, helping me uh, deliver a show that is not super structured and that feels just sort of like you can be a fly on the wall and enjoy what we're talking about. You know, and, and I think I think we have a very special voice. And a lot of that is because of what his his um, contributions have been. So onward and upward for uh, for Devin. Love you. And we will carry on here at Literally. Anyway, I will see you next week. More fun to come. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by Devin Tory Bryant and me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our talent bookers are Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Brett Kahn. And music is by Devin Tory Bryant. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.